You are now listening to the Green History Podcast, produced by Elm Film Studios and presented by AC the Historian. Welcome to Medina Tulmunawara, the luminous city, Islam's second most sacred city, and the burial home of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Let's park here. We can complete our journey to the Prophet's mosque by foot, inshallah. I would hate to knowingly drive over the blessed pathways once trodden by the Prophet Muhammad and his companions. on we're not walking the rest of the way out of religious obligation i don't want you to misunderstand my actions no 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 driving in medina is not prohibited but it is not compulsory either besides do you know who used to live only a few meters away from where we are standing right now it was none other than imam darul hijra himself Malik ibn Anas and do you know of the incident when his young protege Muhammad ibn Idris al-Shafi'i stood right outside his teacher's door right over there and he marveled over the fine stallions from Khorasan that had been left as gifts outside his teacher's door al-Shafi'i expressed his astonishment over the pedigree and quality of such animals However, Imam Malik offered each and every single one of the horses to his disciple without seeking any compensation for it. You're right, that would be like me giving you my Aston Martin over there and a few more like it without any compensation. You might have a bright future in comedy, Faizan. <laughs> anyway, Imam Malik could not bring himself to mounting on a camel, a horse or even a donkey for the intent purpose of traveling whilst he was anywhere in Medina. This was simply because he feared treading over the land in which the Prophet is laid to rest. It was out of his profound love and respect for our Prophet. But it does not mean that no one else is allowed to ride an animal or drive a vehicle in this city. Let's avoid taking things out of context. Besides, it would be nice, wouldn't it, for us to walk and take some fresh air while observing the surroundings after such a long journey by car. We should be there in time for the evening prayers, inshallah. There she is, Masjid al-Nabi, the Prophet's mosque. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Let us enter.
here we are at last. Faizan, what do you see before you? Yes, it is the pulpit. And it goes without saying that this would have been the very same place from which the companions would listen to our Prophet while he delivered his sermons. Can you even imagine what it would have felt like to be in such a blessed gathering? And there are so many more timeless treasures in this masjid. No, I do not speak of diamonds and gold, but of historic markers and locations within this very sanctuary, because each and every one of them is a historical marker that tells its own story of the Prophet Muhammad his movements, his activities and his life within this very blessed sanctuary. You should know that the best kept secrets are those that are hidden in plain sight. If only the people knew the history of this masjid, they would be fighting over one another to pray, to sleep or to walk in the same spot over which the Prophet once walked prayed and slept upon. But this is exactly what the Saudi authorities are afraid of, the people's reactions. But education is really the key and until we reach that level of understanding, people shall continue to behave the way they are, out of love of course, but actions are guided by knowledge and not emotions. Let us conclude our tour for today and prepare for the prayer. Come, sit next to me while we wait. There will be announcing the Akama in 10 to 15 minutes. That gives me just enough time to tell you about all that has been happening here in Medina over recent years. You see Faizan, we are in the midst of a very significant and transformative era in the Muslim world. It has only been a few decades since the Ottoman Empire was abolished and new nations have since emerged from its ruins. They are now indecisive, even conflicted about their identities. If I were a psychologist, I may have diagnosed this as a form of national existential crisis. Still, in the past two decades, things have been exceptionally eventful in this region, with many Arab thinkers and intellectuals acquiring new and modern means of education, especially those returning from Western European destinations such as Paris, London and Rome. Though to be fair, this trend has been rising ever since Napoleon entered Egypt, which underwent even more westernization following Muhammad Ali Pasha's reforms. However, more recently, the prevalence of printed books have facilitated the spread of liberal and secular ideologies, not to mention the new political philosophies that have taken to the social milieu of the upper classes like a wildfire, especially in key metropolitan cities such as Cairo, Damascus and Baghdad. Now we have a new social class, Al-Muthaqqaf. Linguistically, this title can refer 
to the cultured individual. However, in modern parlance, it is synonymous with the free thinker, sometimes even comparable to the autodidact, and by that I mean the self-taught intellectual whose understanding of complicated text is primarily derived from self-guided study of books and not as a result of any formally recognized training in that field of study. Anyway, in regards to Islam, the Muthaqqaf is characterized as one who is increasingly detached from traditionalism and the formal study of religion. Instead, they tend to favor private reading and study of ancient religious texts to derive their own conclusions, often in direct opposition to well-established traditional views and scholarly consensus. This type of individual has often been compared to the early Lutheran Protestants, who came about after Martin Luther rejected the interpretations and intermediary role of the Catholic priests in favor of direct access to the Bible. Faison, do you know much about the Protestant reform? Then I won't get into too much detail. However, the Protestants championed a principle known as sola scriptura, which is a Latin phrase that translates in English as scripture alone. It had to do with the principle of religious authority. In essence, it sought to challenge the principle of who should have authority for making interpretations in regards to the word of God. Was it only the priesthood or was it anyone who had access to the Bible and could read it? But you see, while the concept of sola scriptura may sound reasonable in postmodern societies, it was in fact a revolutionary concept, because before that, most Catholics were forbidden from reading the Bible for themselves, and were instead taught to rely only on the interpretations and sermons delivered through the agency of the priests alone. But at that time, when most Europeans were illiterate, this policy was acceptable. However, following the invention of the printing press by Johann Gutenberg in 15th century Germany, many ordinary men and women had access to cheap copies of the Bible and could, for the very first time in history, read the Word of God for themselves without having to attend a church or without having to rely on the interpretations of a priest. The affordability and abundance of printed material also had the effect of spreading literacy far and wide, so more and more people became literate and could read the Bible for themselves. It is therefore no coincidence that another German pioneer, Martin Luther, would go on to lay the theological foundations for what would later come to be known as the Protestant Reformation. Without digging too deep into history, what I wanted to illustrate to you was that the rise in printed books and literacy had resulted in the emergence of ordinary people seeking to not only read the Bible for themselves, but also to question what they had been taught by the Catholic clergy in the first place. Scripture alone therefore represented this new spirit of self-determinism within the Christian world, one where every man and woman who had enough literacy to read the Bible was now encouraged to read for themselves, independent of scholarly interpretations. Faisan, does any of this sound familiar to you? Because it should. You see, it took a few centuries. However, when the technological wave eventually reached the Middle East, 
and printed copies of the Quran became freely available, more people began reading it for themselves and the Muthaqqaf emerged as the champion for the free-thinking person, an audience who for the very first time had access to cheap prints and enjoyed a very high rate of literacy. Therefore the Quran was increasingly read without the guidance and interpretation of scholars. Add to that, new philosophies and political theories from Europe had also swept across places such as Egypt, Syria and Iraq following the occupation of Western European powers there. It is not surprising that Muslim scholars warned severely against this new phenomenon, but technological advancement was too prevalent and new ideas began to emerge. The Muthaqqaf were convinced that they too could rely solely on the scripture to derive the true meaning of the message of Islam without the guidance of scholars, who by then represented a form of medieval stagnation. So basically the Muthaqqaf, by and large, had embraced the concept of sola scriptura under the banner of Islamic revivalism, textual revisionism and intellectual progression. But it was really the same thing. While this new and liberating ideology may be empowering and even interesting for most thinkers, what people failed to realize here was that nations such as Germany, France and Britain went from questioning the religious establishment to questioning God. Because it doesn't take very long for man to rise above his rank. You see Faizan, when this new intellectual ideology began to appear in the Muslim world during the 1950s, there was a great concern from scholars. Some even criticized and forbade the printing of religious books altogether, including copies of the Hadith and even the Quran itself. They had serious fears of people becoming misguided by the erroneous interpretations of untrained and inexperienced laymen. For example, right now, many of these people are more concerned with reconciling the Quran to Aristotle's theories far more than they are with the understanding of the old and early generations. And at the same time, there was another movement to redefine the Arab world and establish a new identity, one based on culture and language rather than faith. Once the Ottomans were vanquished, the Arabs were struggling to make sense of their condition. Some called for a return to the early Islamic identity, while others called to pan-Arab nationalism. The ideological battle between Islamic identity and pan-Arab nationalism gave birth to a new era, the Islamic awakening, As-Sahwa al-Islamiyyah. Here in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, King Faisal did his very best to reach out to fellow Muslim leaders from Palestine to Pakistan. فسياستنا معروفة واتجاهنا واضح نحن دعاة لكلمة الله سبحانه وتعالى ودعاة لأن يكون دين الله ظاهر على كل شيء
he tried to instill and reinforce the spirit of Islamic Brotherhood and unity at a time when the Middle East and the Muslim world at large was experiencing what many historians have called the Arab Cold War. The king invested heavily in religious education and institutions such as the Islamic University of Medina and other Islamic think tanks in Mecca. You can still find rare images from the summit arranged by the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, the OIC, which was hosted in Pakistan in 1974. My favorite picture was that in which King Faisal is sitting in the front row of a mosque next to leaders such as Muammar Gaddafi, Yasser Arafat, Anwar Sadat, Sheikh Mujib al-Rahman, and Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto. Faisan, each and every one of them died under questionable circumstances if they were not outrightly assassinated. Makes you think, doesn't it? Anyway, during the awakening of the Sahwa Islamiyah, the climate here was very unpredictable and also confusing. There were so many political and religious movements springing up all over the Muslim world, from Egypt to Syria to Palestine to Saudi Arabia. But as the socialist and pan-Arab governments were becoming less tolerant of the Islamic movements, many activists were soon imprisoned or expelled from their homelands. Many thinkers came over here seeking refuge in the 50s and 60s. Those that remained in their country were imprisoned and often tortured to death. These new arrivals to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia were mostly intellectuals and professionals who quickly assimilated into the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. They found jobs as lecturers, journalists, administrators. No doubt, these influential posts would have a major impact on the educational system and in institutions such as the Islamic University of Medina. For example, one of the most influential arrivals from Syria was Sheikh Nasiruddin al-Albani, who was actually invited here by the Vice President of the Islamic University of Medina, Sheikh Abdul Aziz bin Baz. It was back in 1961, I believe. Sheikh Nasiruddin became an instructor at the faculty of Hadith and gained many students and followers during his two short years here. He was later expelled from the kingdom in 1963, but returned for a second term some years later, only to be expelled a second time. Even though Sheikh al-Albani's views and stance were not always well received in the kingdom, his legacy was to have a very long-lasting impact here. It's also important for me to point out that the Sahwa Islamiyah was not a homogenous entity. And by that I mean that it wasn't just one group of Muslims. However, there were two main subcategories. On the one hand, you had the politicized, pragmatic and modern revisionist thinkers, which was championed by groups such as the Ikhwanul Muslimin and Hezbo Tahrir and many other groups as well. They came mostly from Egypt, Palestine and Syria. But on the other hand, there was the apolitical, pious and literalistic Islamic revivalism which focused more on strict adherence to classical text and the revival of early practices from the first three generations of Islam. This movement rejected all things that was foreign and new to this region. Perhaps the best example of this was the Salafi Da'wah which flourished in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in the 60s and 70s, but in actuality came from Egypt and Syria. Yes, Egypt and Syria. I don't want to delve into this discussion too much for now, 
but we shall revisit that later on inshallah anyway what has any of this to do with our visit here the answer is Faizan absolutely everything Medina was the epicenter of a lot of Islamic activities and ideas during the Sahwa Islamiya beginning from the early 60s almost as soon as the University of Medina opened its doors there was an influx of foreigners coming from neighboring Arab countries and states in 1965 a group of students and callers to Islam began to participate in the open destruction of images and mannequins in public squares the act itself came to be known as Taksir al-Suwar the breaking of images Faizan, have you heard of the iconoclast before? I will recommend for you to research these terms when you get back inshallah. It is very important for you to develop your intellect. Anyway, this would eventually drive them to damaging public displays, breaking shop windows and basically being a nuisance in Medina, resulting in fights between them and local residents here. The authorities were duly informed and the police apprehended the perpetrators, sending them to jail for a week following their arrest. Interestingly enough though, this turn of events did not discourage them from continuing their campaign of destruction, but instead they sought to organize and formalize their group's mission by approaching the vice president of the Islamic University here in Medina, Sheikh Abdul Aziz bin Baz. The Sheikh welcomed their proposal to establish a new group called Al Jama'a Salafiyya. In fact, the Sheikh even suggested that they complete the group's title by adding the word Muhtasiba at the end, implying that they would also engage in, in the act of commanding righteousness and forbidding vice. From the very inception, the Jamaat al-Salafiyya al-Muhtasiba was endorsed and supported by senior scholars in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which even included authorities such as Sheikh Abu Bakr al-Jazairi, Sheikh Muqbil ibn Hadi al-Wadi, and Sheikh Badi al-Din al-Sindi, to name just a few scholars here. But they considered Sheikh Abdul Aziz bin Baz as their patron and spiritual guide. So Sheikh bin Baz appointed Sheikh Abu Bakr al-Jazairi as his deputy over the group. They were no doubt influenced by the ideas of Sheikh Nasiruddin al-Albani also, which is not surprising if you consider the fact that many of them attended the University of Medina. But at first, the Jama'a Salafiyya al-Muhtasiba focused on refuting and warning against other Islamic groups that had been present and involved in the da'wah scene here in Medina. They targeted groups such as the Tabligh Jama'a, Ikhwan al-Muslimin, Sufi Brotherhoods and other active groups. Their membership base began to grow rapidly in the 70s and soon enough they even had a designated two-story building as their headquarters called the Bayt al-Ikhwan the House of the Ikhwan. Then they began organizing weekly study circles and regular conferences from their headquarters. The movement flourished and the administrative functions grew. By the mid-1970s, they had expanded their reach and influence across the kingdom with chapters in every major city, including Mecca, Riyadh, Jeddah, Ta'if, Ha'il, Abha, Dammam and Al-Burayda. Each branch had a local leader assigned to it and a coordinator. 
Some of the larger cities even had their own buildings. They continued their da'wah here in Medina for a few more years. But the Jama'a Salafi al-Muhtasiba soon caught the attention of Medina's senior scholars, but for all the wrong reasons. One of their members, Muqbil bin Hadi al-Wadi, who was at the time studying here, was summoned and interrogated by two senior scholars who questioned him in regards to 12 points of concern that had been brought up against the activities and teachings of the Jama'a Salafiyya al-Muhtasiba when the counsel and advice of the senior scholars did not seem to have any impact on the behavior and comportment of the group. A secret meeting was therefore organized between some major scholars and the group's steering committee. It was sometime last year in 1977. The location for this meeting was on the rooftop of the Jama'at's headquarter here in Medina. The leading members of the consultative council were also in attendance. But without spending hours talking about this secret meeting and the group, I must tell you that all of this information is building up to the background story to a more eventful chapter in this kingdom's history. Because of all the things we can say about the Jama'a Salafiyya al-Muhtasiba, none was as remarkable of the emergence of one man from amongst them. His name was Juhayman, the son of Muhammad bin Saif from the tribe of Utayba. Shh! Don't mention his name so loud, Faisan. This name, Juhayman, strikes the attention of everyone here in Medina. Yes, he is in fact from the same tribe as that of Sultan bin Bajad al-Utaybi, the fierce leader of the original Ikhwan who was executed by the soldiers of King Abdul Aziz in 1931. No, I wouldn't say that Juhayman is particularly scary or even intimidating as an individual. The people here do not fear him, but they are on high alert to any news about him. No one seems to know where he resides at the moment, and the police are looking for him everywhere. No, to the contrary, he's a very pious man. His family actually comes from the Sukur branch of the Utayba tribe, and they still live in the Ikhwan settlements in the heart of Najd. Some historians even claim that his grandfather was none other than Sultan bin Bajad al-Utaybi. However, that has been proven to be historically inaccurate. Although, it is well known that Juhayman's father, Muhammad bin Saif, was one of the Ikhwan soldiers who fought alongside Sultan bin Bajad during the infamous Ikhwan revolts that took place here in 1929. Juhayman's father survived the Battle of Sibilla and went on to live for another 42 years. He only died six years ago, in 1972. It would seem that he, Juhayman, is very keen to walk in the footsteps of his father and to perhaps create a legacy for himself in this kingdom. No, he was not really known for any criminal activities in Medina. In fact, up until a few years ago, Juhayman was somewhat of an ordinary character. I mean, Juhayman only spent four years in school when he was a child. He dropped out and later joined the Saudi National Guard, like many descendants of the Ikhwan here. He was in the service of this kingdom between 1955 and 1973, but he left five years ago for some unknown reason. That was when he decided to move here, to Medina. When he first got here, Juhayman lived a simple and ascetic lifestyle. He lived in a makeshift compound about half an hour's walk from this masjid. 
and he spent most of his days studying and memorizing Quran and Hadith with his friends. Juhayman earned money by buying and repairing old cars from the city auctions. He then sold them on at a modest profit. Anyone would have been comfortable buying a car from him. He was far too observant and pious to ever cheat his customers and most of them knew that perfectly well, which is why his business flourished. Juhayman also attended lectures and study circles. Though he was not enrolled at the Islamic University of Medina, contrary to many claims. However, he was well known amongst the students at the university and many teachers also took a liking to him. It was long after that when he officially joined the Jama'a al-Salafi al-Muhtasiba here in Medina. But all of that came to an end last year following the meeting between the scholars and the consultative council. For the time being, Juhayman is on the run from the authorities here. Most recently, some of his former associates have started contacting the authorities and providing information about his whereabouts and activities. However, some of his fellow tribesmen who also work in the police managed to notify Juhayman of the planned raids at the headquarters, enabling him to escape out of Medina, accompanied by two of his closest associates. They headed out of the city and into the desert where they could gain cover with the Bedouin tribes. Since that day, no one seems to know where he is and what he's doing. Faizana, I have to cut it short now. It's time to pray. Allah, that was a beautiful experience. Faizan, do you know who led us in prayer today? It was none other than Sheikh Ali bin Abdul Rahman al Hudayfi. He's actually the Imam of Masjid al Quba, but he was visiting here today. Insha'Allah, one day he shall become the Imam of this Masjid as well. Oh, yes, I was telling you about the meeting between the senior scholars and the Jama'a Salafi al Muhtasiba, wasn't I? You know what? It may be even more interesting if we went to visit the headquarters, Bayt al-Ikhwan. It's not too far from here. It's in Har al-Sharqiyya, the eastern quarters of Medina. It's a modest neighborhood whose residents are known for their conservative customs. It's also a great place for them to operate from. Here we are, Faizan. We can't go any closer, as the building may be under surveillance as we speak. Can you hear the recitations of Quran from the windows? That's right. They're a very observant and disciplined bunch. Anyway, Look up right there, that is where the meeting took place, just over a year ago, on the rooftop. Uh oh, Faizan, we must leave immediately, 
I sense that we're being followed. On my count to three, start running as fast as you can. Follow my lead. One, two, three. Hurry, hurry, hurry! Right, we have company. Hold tight and fasten your seatbelt. Wow, that was close. But I'm afraid we may have been under surveillance for some time now. Maybe someone heard our conversation about Juhayman in the masjid. They must have notified the authorities, thinking that we were part of his group. We nearly got caught up in a very serious situation there. Sadly though, we didn't even get the opportunity to venture out into the desert, or to even meet any of the members of the Jama'ah. But I have a plan. Let's head back to the office. With enough luck, I may be able to arrange a private conference with a doctor, who used to be an active member of the Jama'ah Salafi al muhtasiba he can explain to you what he witnessed firsthand and how the group eventually disbanded following that one important meeting. Let's go.